0: Providing you with unique insights, unparalleled data, and real-time market analyses. Good morning,
1: everyone. It's a pleasure to have Kate Moore joining me again on the Walker webcast to talk about the markets and where she and BlackRock see things going from here. Last June, immediately after the killing of George Floyd, I asked Walker & Dunlop board member and founder and CEO of Management Leadership for Tomorrow, John Rice, to join me on the Walker webcast. And during that discussion, John said, the time for words is over and the time for action is now. And over the past 10 months, a good deal of action has happened across corporate America and across the country. And the guilty verdict given to Derek Chauvin by a jury in Minneapolis yesterday was our justice system working, and thank goodness it worked. But as many commentators rightly said yesterday, we still have a long way to go. At Walker & Dunlop, we've taken concrete steps over the past 10 months to be a more diverse and better company. While we have been focused on issues of diversity for decades, we decided to hire a chief diversity officer and give that role the human capital and focus it deserves. We established ambitious five-year diversity and inclusion goals for women and minorities at Walker & Dunlop and established those goals to not only promote women and minorities into leadership positions, but to pay them more. And we tied those goals to our executive team's short and long-term compensation which is outlined in our 2020 proxy that was filed with the SEC. We were one of the first 25 corporations in America to sign up for the Management Leadership for Tomorrow Black Equity at Work Certification, which includes an audit of where we stand today and the establishment of goals to achieve tomorrow. We have established a commercial real estate diversity task force, working with some of the largest owner operators of commercial real estate in the United States, including Graystar, Kane Anderson, and KKR. And we have continued to do the things we always did before. Be a great place to work, which includes an environment that is accepting of diverse backgrounds, genders, races, sexual orientations, religions, etc. Continue recruiting talented women and minorities and ensuring that they get the training and opportunities to build valuable careers at Walker and & Dunlop. And continue to outperform the competition, showing that diversity and inclusion isn't only the right thing to do, it's the valuable thing to do. A couple of quick comments on the markets. The 10-year stabilizing around 1.60% has been extremely helpful to the commercial real estate financing markets. The dramatic rise in 10-year treasury during Q1 had many borrowers on the sidelines, and the current stability is allowing many borrowers to transact once again. Fannie and Freddie, who carried over a significant amount of business from 2020 into 2021, and then pulled back from the market significantly in February and March, have finally cut their pricing and appear to be re-entering the market. That is a very welcome sign for owners of multifamily properties. Cap rates continue to compress in multi and industrial, which has many buyers scratching their heads. I had lunch with a client in Salt Lake City last week who couldn't understand how a class B multifamily property in Albuquerque, New Mexico had recently traded for a 3.9 cap rate. And I reminded him that multifamily has now held up through the great financial crisis and COVID pandemic, it is a cash-flowing asset that at a 3.9 cap rate, that acquisition will still have positive leverage. And in today's yield-starved world, buying that property is a great way to deploy capital. And then I also reminded him that there is a ton of capital out there today. Final note before I begin my discussion with Kate, to understand where the product markets are headed, The replays on the Walker webcast are starting to gain fantastic momentum. And after this discussion with Kate today, we will have had over 750,000 views of the Walker webcast, either live or on YouTube replay. Over 80,000 people have watched the replay of the Walker webcast with Brendan Wallace of Fifth Wall and Casey Berman of Camber Creek. And at our current replay rate, we will be over 1 million views very soon. I'm truly honored to have such amazing guests such as Kate join me every week and we will continue to produce the Walker webcast for as long as thousands of people tune in each week. Next week, we have Jim Lair, world-renowned sports psychologist and author of 17 books, including Leading with Character, to discuss just that, competition, mental toughness, and leading with character. The following week, I'm thrilled to have Will Ahmed, founder and CEO of unicorn health and technology company, Whoop, join me to discuss sleep, strain, recovery, and how Whoop data is being used by people, including Hideki Matsuhama during the final round of the masters to live better and healthier lives. And then we'll have Deb Cafaro, one of the most successful and inspirational CEOs in America, talk about how she has built Ventus into a commercial real estate and seniors housing powerhouse. Great lineup, and it all starts now with Kate. Quick intro on Kate, and then we'll get into it. Kate Moore is managing director at BlackRock and a member of the global allocation investment and team and head of thematic strategy. Her investment mandate includes identifying opportunities to exploit structural change, policy evolution, and dislocations across global industries. She is a member of the Human Capital Committee. Prior to joining BlackRock, Kate was the chief investment strategist for the private bank at J.P. Morgan and a member of the Global Investment Committee. Before J.P. Morgan, she was senior global equity strategist at B of A Merrill Lynch Global Research an emerging market strategist at Moore Capital Management, and a member of the global strategy team at Morgan Stanley Investment Management. She holds a BA in political and social thought from the University of Virginia, where my father also happened to have gone to college, uh, where Kate is also serves on the board of managers of the Alumni Association, and she holds an MA in political economy from the University of Chicago, where my guest last week, Peter Lineman, has his PhD from. So Kate, Let's make a little news this morning. Um, Your job is to identify opportunities to exploit structural change and policy evolutions. We've had a lot of structural change and policy evolutions in the U.S. over the past couple months. What did we miss or what can we exploit from your perspective at BlackRock?
0: Thanks, Willie. I'm super glad to be back on. A little intimidated by the lineup that you have over coming weeks, though, and I will say number one, I want to learn more about performance. And number two, I'm super focused on my sleep and, the, and how that sort of interplays with my athletics. So I'll be tuning in. Well, I go. wear an aura ring, which might be controversial, but we can talk more about that. Online. All good. Okay. So what's happened in terms of sort of big, big structural changes over the last, let's call it 15 months. There's some things that we all talk about that we know, kind of bringing forward demand when it comes to consumers. Um, how they're purchasing, how they're interacting with products, how they're interacting with brands, you know, that's pretty straightforward. We kind of know that's been going on. But there's a lot of other things that I think have been somewhat recognized by the market, but are actually really enduring trends that, you know, I want to get ahead of and I'm aggressively invested in. One of them is around uh, software security and, and particularly security systems that protect against cyber threats. Zero trust software in particular. You know, we've learned, and BlackRock had, you know, all 16,000 of our employees at one point working remotely, I'm still working remotely, that it's incredibly important to have the right software and systems in place to protect critical data, whether it's client data, proprietary data, uh, systems, and models. And most companies have to continue to spend on this. In fact, despite spending on it in 2020, we've actually heard from many of the chief uh technology officers and chief investment officers in their surveys of where they're putting capital to work over the course of this year and next, that technology and cyber software is like their number one area of spend. So that I think is an important durable trend as we think about the future of the workforce, as we understand the threats that could potentially come when people are not in their uh, home office location, and also the threats that we've experienced to governments and non-government organizations. So I think that's like a really interesting theme.
1: And of course- Um, If I can, before you move on to the next one, Mm -hmm. on that, clearly a big issue, Fed Chairman Powell mentioned it as his biggest concern when he did a 60 Minutes interview two weeks ago. My question to you is, how much additional spend do you expect there? In other words, I get the fact that everyone needs to protect themselves, but companies like BlackRock and Walker & Dunlop were already spending. Do you think that there's an additional outlay or is it just that you want to invest in the best because that's going to be something that's going to be needed forever?
0: Yeah, I think there's going to be an additional outlay. I mean, one of the problems, but I would say the opportunities for many of these uh, software security companies uh, is that the threats continue to evolve. They become more sophisticated. They're coming from different sources. There are additional vulnerabilities that get exposed through day-to-day work. I actually expect the spend to accelerate. We're talking about kind of mid-teens double-digit um, spending for most of the companies relative to kind of 8 to 9 to 10% spend in the space that we saw in the years pre-COVID. As I said, this is a combination from like picking up on all of the global stress and all of the global uh, threats, whether it's to governments, non-government organizations or private enterprise, as well as the recognition that all of our systems just got a lot more complicated. So this is a a place of durable spend, I, I think, and we're gonna see more and more companies enter the space both the big enterprise companies acquiring smaller private companies to sort of bolster their offering, as well as, I, you know, we, we've seen a couple really innovative, super interesting companies in the private space that will come public over the next year. Great. The second thing I was going to mention was yep. around climate. We all talk a lot about renewables and, you know, the Biden administration's increased focus on clean energy and, you know, another big component, let's say, of of the tax plan that the Biden administration has put out is to increase subsidies for clean energy and zero carbon uh, companies and reduce the subsidies for traditional fossil fuels. So that we all know about. But what I think is going to be really interesting is there are so many interesting companies across the entire renewables supply chain. These are companies in the battery space, in the chip space that play directly into electric vehicles the raw materials that go into uh, all of these components. Super interesting. And then increasingly, interesting technological breakthroughs in terms of breaking down traditional plastics or coming up with alternatives uh, to traditional plastics, things that biodegrade in landfills and in water. I think we are at like, not even the first inning of this theme in terms of investing. It's not just about the policy push that's happening in the US. This is something that we're seeing in Europe in China, uh, in most major economies around the world, there's a huge amount of private funding for all of these companies and technologies. And there are many more ways to play than say like an EV company on its own, but rather think about the whole supply chain and and think about everything from consumer packaged goods um, to the materials that go into our houses.
1: Yeah, I would remind people who may have listened to the conversation that I actually mentioned at the outset with Brendan Wallace of Fifth Wall a couple, about a month ago, um, where Brendan basically said, you know, their prop tech fund has had incredible returns as it relates to, you know, prop tech, property technology has really taken off over the past couple of years. And he said, look, we've had amazing returns in our most recent fund, but wait until we, re- we raise our EnviroTech fund because he said, if we think we've done well in prop tech, Envirotech is going to just run past prop tech.
0: That makes a ton of sense. I'll be watching that.
1: Yeah. So, Kate, the the Dow is up 41% over the last 12 months from 23,000 to 34,200. I watched one of the things, both the good and the bad of having someone like you who is so wildly watched, particularly on CNBC and Bloomberg, is that I get to go back and look at things you said at various times and bring you back to it and say, if you'd only known. But in September, before Q3 earnings came out, you were saying, you know, you like the markets, but you were saying, let's wait and see what happens in Q3. And at that time, the Dow was still below 27,000. You were a little cautionary. What's really changed? Between then, September, October, when I saw that interview with you, where you said, you know, let's see what Q3 comes in at. And now, clearly, we've had the vaccine rollout, which has had a huge impact. But anything else from a fundamental standpoint that has changed dramatically since you were somewhat cautious back then to where you are today?
0: Okay. Well, Willie, thanks for holding my feet to the fire and making the answer to my previous comments. No, but in all seriousness, there were a couple of things that were on my mind at that point point in kind of late summer, early fall of 2020. The first was we had just had this phenomenal run in the markets, you know, uh, post the March lows. And so it always feels like you need a little period of consolidation. And then there were three things like an additionally happening. Number one, COVID cases were spiking and we were seeing states and localities locked down again. Uh, we were going into what we knew was a very challenging U.S. election. And we also were not really certain at that point how sustainable earnings were going to be in a period where like revenue growth was pretty limited. So what we saw, and one of the reasons why I became more constructive over the course of the fourth quarter, as companies were reporting third quarter earnings, was this incredible ability to generate earnings, uh, even in a tough economic environment. Revenue growth may have been anemic, in some cases negative, but companies cut costs and streamlined their businesses. Uh, and they were really delivering on the bottom line. So despite the political and the virus-related challenges, I became more constructive uh, as companies started to report. But kind of what's what's changed? Well, number one, markets have run a lot further. You mentioned the Dow. I tend to focus on the S&P, which is up 52% over the last 12 months. I'm very thankful to say my fund has captured uh, that upside and then some. But you know, we're we now at a place where we're having this you know, vaccine and economic restart. We have more political stability with a clear policy program, no longer in an election season. And we have a very healthy consumer and accommodative policy. And you combine all of that together and that's a wonderful kind of growth backdrop. That said, I think some risk assets are already pricing in that backdrop. So it's not that I'm overly cautious, but I expect that the market is gonna have to digest uh, some big news over the course of the next couple months, maybe even quarters, which is, you know, how companies deal with inflation, how much gets passed on to consumers, uh, whether or not the proposed changes in the corporate tax policy are going to be a significant hit to earnings or if we get a watered down uh, policy as we kind of move forward. And then kind of finally, uh, once we get through this sugar high, this massive pop in terms of earnings growth, because the comps are so low in the first and second quarter, which companies and where we're going to see sustained earnings growth uh, in a post-pandemic, more trend growth world. So you mentioned
1: the election. Any surprise on your part that there was a lot of talk that if Biden won, Democrats come in, government gets big, taxes go up, markets will sell off. There was a narrative that was being played around the election time. Clearly, we haven't seen that. Are you surprised at how the markets have continued to move forward, even with that as the
0: political backdrop today? Now, markets crave clarity. You know, they want certainty. And I think regardless of whether or not you agree with all of Biden's policy proposals or his priorities, he's super clear about what they are and goes to great lengths at explaining each detail of his policy. You know, a market difference between Biden and Trump is that after announcing a huge stimulus, you know, his team gets on the road to sell that stimulus even after it's already been passed to voters and to individuals, not because they have an eye on the next election, but because they want more popular support and understanding for future programs. And so I, mean, I think that communication has been really key. And one of the reasons why the market, um, frankly, has not been uh, as worried. I would also note that quite a lot of the stimulus that is being proposed, is really growth generative, whether it's around green energy uh, or infrastructure, or very importantly, support for lower income households. I mean, I think this is a very big one. We're looking to get a big announcement from the Biden administration at the early part of next week. And I expect that we're gonna hear continued support, post COVID support for segments of our um, economy and our households that have been left behind, not just over the last couple of years, but over a longer period of time. That's quite supportive of growth. And I think the market likes that.
1: So you and I both remember the dot-com build up and then bust and the stocks like Globe Street and others that had these silly valuations that no one could really understand, but it was a momentum play and people wanted to dive in and take their risk, if you will. And it's hard to see things like Dogecoin and GameStop do what they're doing and not sort of get a little... Concern that the market's doing some things that just don't make any sense. What should investors keep in mind as you see something like Dogecoin have a fifty billion dollar valuation as being created as literally a hoax, and GameStop, which, you know, you'd sit there and listen to really insightful people like yourself who said this isn't going to end well. And I think everybody who's invested said this thing is not going to end well. But at the same time, GameStop, as of yesterday, was still trading at one hundred fifty-eight bucks a share and had an eleven billion dollar market cap, which If you'd asked me to bet on that GameStop would still be at that level today, I would have lost a lot of money because I wouldn't think it would still be there. How do we make sense of this sort of what I call silliness in the market?
0: Yeah. First of all, let me say, Lily, a whole bunch of that stuff that happened during the dot-com bust. You know, I thought there was something wrong with me. I was like, I don't understand this company. It doesn't make any sense. What are they doing? You know, they're not really generating any cash flow And then I thought, maybe I'm just dumb and I'm asking the wrong questions. Maybe I'm looking at, you know, sort of the the wrong framework. I feel quite thankful that I was uh, depending on rationality at that moment. And, you know, I would say the same now. Does it frustrate me that GameStop is up 10 times where it started this year, despite some of the best names in software uh, being down after beating and raising guidance? Yeah, it's a little frustrating. At the same time, it doesn't make me want to jump in and and sort of participate in these companies or in these investments that I can't value, you know, that either are structurally impaired or don't have a defined supply-demand or sort of structure to them. Does that mean I'll miss out on some some gains, perhaps speculative gains? Of course, but there's plenty of other places to make money. And so I just, I I note these things, you know, 20-something years uh, after I started my career, I feel much more confident saying You know, if that doesn't seem to make sense to me, it might actually not make sense.
1: So, on that, and talking specifically to things that either make sense or don't make sense, does Bitcoin make sense to you? Uh, My my father passed along a thing this morning from J.P. Morgan, your former uh, firm, saying that if Bitcoin doesn't get over sixty thousand dollars a coin in the in a very short term, it's going to collapse because it's just a momentum trade. And I sit there and I read that and I say, that doesn't make any sense. And then I say, actually, it does make sense because all it is is a momentum trade right now. There's no value there. What's what's BlackRock's take on Bitcoin and what's your personal take on Bitcoin? And I know I'm asking you to put on two hats and I'm I'm certain that Blackstone doesn't want to, a BlackRock does not want to hear you being just personal cake. But how do you view Bitcoin?
0: Yeah, so it's, it's a great question. First of all, I think it's pretty difficult to put any sort of price target on an asset like Bitcoin. Like unlike other cryptos as we all know, Bitcoin has a finite supply and therefore, you know, in theory, uh, has much better support than some of the other crypto assets. You know, I think we have to ask ourselves whether or not crypto in general is a substitute for currency. Now, it's it's not a threat to fiat currency for most use cases uh, it's not for payments or means of exchange. You know, we think that fiat is superior. I mean, it's already digital, it's instant, it's convenient, uh, accessible in a million different places. And not necessarily, I wouldn't say Bitcoin or crypto has the doesn't have the utility of, of a regular currency. You know, and monetary policy is kind of beginning to erode fiat's edge. We know that and sort of diver, um, dilute it. And crypto can be a hedge. But... You know, there's a big institutional structure supporting fiat currency, and I don't think we're going to be replacing all of our fiat currency with crypto. That said, you know, in my fund, Global Allocation, we have started to add Bitcoin in particular, and this is out publicly, so I'm happy to say this on the webcast, as part of our overall currency basket, uh, thinking about diversifying our non-equity, fixed income, privates, uh, or liquids assets. And it's not so much that we think that Bitcoin is gonna outperform everything else, but we have noted that it has um, not always the highest correlation to some of the other assets we own. And we think it provides diversification basket, a benefit within our currency basket. So um, it's much as we would own a little bit of gold. Uh, I wonder if, and this is my own personal speculation, Bitcoin is gonna replace gold uh, in terms of a currency hedge, longer term, simply because it can be easier to hold for many people. It has the advantage of a fixed supply and it being entirely digital means that no one has to take physical delivery. So, you know, I, I think it has a place in portfolios, but I, I put it in that kind of currency and alternatives bucket as a diversifier, as opposed to, you know, the largest single bet. Now, I'm sure I could have been really rich if I had thought of it otherwise at another point in my career, but I didn't. So
1: you talked about the fiat currency and my, and you also watch politics and you also watch China very closely. Is Bitcoin too big today for the U.S. government to stop it Uh, to the degree that if China comes out with a digital currency that could really present a threat to the dollar being the fiat currency, don't you think the U.S. Treasury steps in to try and stop that transition?
0: Well, it's a good question. And I'm going to tell you, we have some experts on crypto at BlackRock that are better at this than me, but China is already in this space. They see the value of digital currency. And they like to control the digital currency. I mean, I think that PBOC and Chinese government policymakers understand something critical. This is here to stay. You know, blockchain-based currencies are here to stay. And it's better for the institutions to be involved early and uh, to have a say in how they're used than perhaps to let it sort of run wild. Um, I think we're going to see much more widespread, you know, embracing of digital currencies and of of cryptocurrencies by central banks, as long as they have a role or a, a responsibility in some way uh, for monitoring and regulating them. But I think there's going to be there's going to be an underlying demand for for Bitcoin for a non-government controlled or central bank controlled currency. But I would just note that. As I said before, if I can't define the kind of a supply demand, if I don't understand entirely how to value an asset, you know, it, it may not be a core part of our portfolio. I'll tell you, really something funny, you know, you know, I'm a big skier and throughout the course uh, of the ski season, I got asked by a lot of folks on the mountain who knew that I was in finance, you know, Kate, should I be buying Bitcoin right now? My first question is, how does it diversify the rest of your portfolio? Yeah. And, you know, for a bunch of these folks, they're like, well, you know, what do you mean? I don't really have anything else. I've got cash to sit on. And I said, well, talk to me when you have a diversified portfolio and you're looking to add a hedge.
1: So final thing on on crypto for a moment, which is just that to that question, is there a point where, as you talked about institutions, so. I wanted to buy Bitcoin and I'm going to ping my, my, I, I wanted to buy Bitcoin back when it was $19,000 a coin. I called up my guy at JP Morgan said, let's go buy some Bitcoin. And, um, uh, about three weeks later, when it moved up to twenty-eight or twenty-nine thousand per coin, I called him up and said, hey, "Isn't it great that we went and bought Bitcoin?" And he said, "Oh, I, you didn't get the memo I sent you. J.P. Morgan, we can't trade in in, in Bitcoin, so um, I couldn't buy it for you. I sent you back a lengthy memo on how you could actually go do it on your own, but I can't do it at J.P. Morgan." Is there a tipping point on sort of adoption where a J.P. Morgan or other big financial services uh, firm say, "We're now in it." where then that risk of it sort of being peeled back by the government says it's now too big to fail. It It is now moving forward. I mean, can you watch that and be as precise as that? Or is it just more, it's going to evolve into the economy and it's here to stay?
0: Yeah. I mean, think about this, Willie, how the rhetoric around Bitcoin has evolved over the last couple of years to what the heck is this? You know, this makes no sense. I don't understand To This is slightly interesting. We should be paying closer attention to, hmm, I'm watching how this moves and that it is a diversifier to other assets to, oh my gosh, we have to get there. The problem is that a lot of institutions have been kind of late to the party. And because it's been difficult to understand, requires a specific type of arcane knowledge, you know, to really unpack, you know, a lot of institutions haven't put it on their platform or there has been hesitancy of their regulators to allow different funds to own it, for example. So it feels a little bit like once we broaden out, the investability of it uh, through either private banks or through traditional funds have, you know, additional avenues for individual investors to easily uh, transact in the space that we could see an additional leg of support.
1: So you talked for a moment about in Q1 seeing uh you know, GameStop move up, while some of the technology companies that you've invested in who came out with great earnings have gone down. And you've continued to be bullish on technology, even though a lot of money has moved to the reopening trade. Talk about right now from a positioning standpoint and sort of an outlook for the next year or two, as the economy reopens and so many people have gone to the reopening trade where you think people ought to be mindful as it relates to kind of long-term, this is what's going to give you the best returns.
0: Yeah, look, Willie, yeah, I'll be honest, there were parts of the first quarter where we saw this rip-roaring move in value and in more cyclical parts of the market that I was like having slightly sleepless nights where I was feeling a little anxious, not because I wasn't a believer in the economic restart, because I certainly am, and I'm very, very encouraged by consumer balance sheets, and also, as I was mentioning before, kind of like how companies have handled things. So there's a lot of reasons to be optimistic. And where you could see some of the more cyclical companies perform. But I I, I was sort of like, yeah, I get some of the technology stock is trading at high multiples. And of course, as we were moving higher in rates, there was a readjustment in terms of valuations. But these are fundamentally extremely strong companies that are throwing off free cash flow. And I'm not talking about the unprofitable tech. I'm talking about the profitable tech and the profitable companies with technology platforms across all sectors that were frankly getting just thrown out as people scrambled to restructure their portfolios to reallocate towards cyclical and value trades. I don't think we are completely done with that rotation trade yet, simply because we are on the cusp of even stronger economic data. We know that PMIs, both the services and uh, goods, are at all time or kind of cycle highs at this point. Sure, they can go up a little bit higher, but we're also gonna get stronger inflationary prints. I think the retail side is gonna look very strong. I would expect continued strength across all areas of consumer spending, including durable goods and housing. And that's gonna make people get even more constructive around cyclicals. I pay really close attention to something called earnings revision ratios. These are the uh, number of upgrades relative to downgrades. For stocks, and you aggregate it into industries and sectors, and the earnings revision ratios, number of upgrades relative to downgrades for cyclical sectors are literally the highest they've ever been. I mean, there was a pop, of course, after the 2018 tax cuts that adjustment was made, but this is just off the charts, incredible. People see a lot of pent up demand and a lot of room for spending in some of the more cyclical industries. And by this, I'm talking about, you know, energy and banks, materials industrials. And these were sectors that most of the market was underweight as they stayed you know, firmly anchored to the secular growers throughout the course of 2020 in that difficult economic period. So my expectation is that we're going to get strong data that's going to continue to push people to rotate into some of these cyclical sectors. But you and I are going to be having a different conversation in six months, which is not that these companies do poorly, because I think the economic trajectory is going to be solid, but rather that You know, the kinds of gains that they're experiencing now are going to be unlikely to be replicated and people are going to focus a lot more on sustainable and durable cash flows, uh, which will favor some of the tech trades.
1: So on the, the op- reopening and, and consumer spending specifically, so you just talked about a couple of cyclicals, but go into the, the retail sector, the hospitality sector where, I mean, last week with Peter Lineman on, Peter and I talked about the fact that deposits and checking accounts and savings accounts in the banking system in America has had on average about $3 trillion of deposits and, and, and checking account. And it's that's up to nine point one trillion today. So there's six trillion dollars of what I would call excess deposits sitting in Americans' back pockets, and they're going to go spend it somewhere. So where are they going to go spend it?
0: Yeah, I mean, there's a lot. So there's there's so much to unpack with the consumer. I'm sure we could have spent a whole hour here, but there are a couple of things I sort of want to point out. When we look at the aggregate savings numbers, the aggregate money on the sidelines, you know, that's going to be disproportionately skewed towards the upper income cohorts. I like to think about the top two quintiles, top kind of 40%. There there are a lot of people that, because they are primarily employed in service industries or are lower income workers, who have not been saving as much. Now, of course, the fiscal stimulus that we've had over the course of the last six months has been incredibly supportive for these groups. But I think that fiscal stimulus and support for lower income families and workers is going to be incredibly important even after we get past uh, the COVID support specifically. The Biden administration, I mentioned this a moment ago, has made clear that they have this policy priority to continue to support low-income workers and families. And as I mentioned in the early part of next week, we may see an announcement around the American Family Plan, which is uh, gonna be specifically targeted towards that. So not only do we have this sort of top 40% who are kind of flush with cash, who have a huge amount of pent-up spending on goods and services that they they want to do once they're vaccinated and the economy reopens and restarts, but you also have a lower income cohort that is going to have continued government support, I mean, I think you're going to get the consumer firing on these two really strong engines, which means that both luxury goods and services are going to be well-supported, as well as you know, retailers, uh, whether it's the dollar stores or auto parts stores, etc., that may be better geared towards the lower income consumer will also see uh, stronger earnings. So I, I think you can tell, Lily, I'm pretty bullish on the consumer from here. And we've been looking at a lot of opportunities, both in the public and private space across the sector.
1: So you think that that if you will, trade lasts longer than the cyclical trade. So you're saying cyclical trade has sort of a six-month tail on it, if you will. And not that they're going to fall off a cliff in six months, but they're not going to hold up comparatively. Whereas on the retail trade, you think that that lasts well into 2022?
0: That's right. The incremental gains for the cyclical trade, I think, are, are going to be significantly less uh, six months from now, but the consumer side I feel very confident in over the medium term. And as I said, it's not just the high-end consumer; it's also the low-end consumer and the beneficiaries there. I mean, we're talking about consistent spend on both technology uh, and services, on goods and experiences. And you know, I mean, there are going to be companies that win and that and that lose. I'm not suggesting just buy the entire consumer sector and don't pay attention to fundamentals. But um, I think the breadth of opportunities for the consumer is some of the greatest I've experienced in my career.
1: So you were asked on CNBC a couple of weeks ago what you would pair today. And you you said, oh, that's a that's a tough one. And what you said, though, was that you would pair some of the retail stocks that are already trading at 100% reopening. And so my question to you is, do you think we're not going to get back to 100% reopening?
0: Uh, no, I just think that some of these retail stocks... Are imagining that we go to 100% of the same consumer activity we had in 2019. So by this, I mean the mall-based retailers. Uh, You know, if your primary business model is mall-based retail, and we've seen an acceleration towards uh, online spending and, you know, people are discovering new brands, they're doing more sort of price discovery uh, on their phones and on their computers, It's really hard to say that unless you have a unique value proposition that also offers a service, that a mall-based retail outlet is going to be that attractive. So some of these things, everyone just kind of went back and said, you know, what did okay in 2019? It was beat up. And they just bought this basket of stocks without asking themselves, has that business model been disrupted permanently over the course of the last 13, 14 months? And the answer for some of those companies is yes, that has permanently been disrupted. Now, some of those companies have modify their business models and are more agile, but it's a handful, not the whole group.
1: So on that, you know, the the big have gotten bigger. I'm shocked at, for instance, Chipotle and how Chipotle has traded. And the play there is not only has Chipotle done well, but there's a play that a lot of their competition of the local sandwich shop has gone out of business during Mm -hmm. the pandemic. And therefore, they're just going to continue to gobble up more and more client base and, and more and more wallet share, if you will. Is there... And that seems to make a lot of sense. A lot of the big box retailers, similarly, Target's done really, really well, uh, a number of those. Is there is there a sector that hasn't sort of started that consolidation, but you're thinking is it's going to happen over the next six to 12 months where um, we haven't really seen it come back because during the pandemic was so changed, but we're going to see kind of consolidation in certain brands or certain styles?
0: Yeah, actually, Willie, that's such a great question. And the answer is the place I'm looking for uh, that type of change to happen, that consolidation that hasn't quite happened yet, is in business services. Mm-hmm. So, you know, most people have been playing into, uh, as I mentioned, the restart trade in retail or in travel and leisure, but we're all going to be going back to offices, even if it's not 100% at the time. And business services, whether it's around industrial facilities or food service, et cetera, you know, there are a couple big players. But they, you know, together I think mean, the top three only make up about 50% of the North American market share, and yet they have better supply chains and better cleaning protocols, and you know, ability to scale uh, that I think have been under-recognized by the market. So I would expect small, more kind of smaller companies that have been doing sort of in-sourced, you know, facility services, uh, you know, sports arenas if they were doing in-sourced facility services, and schools, especially higher education will look to some of these bigger services, these bigger companies and say, wow, they've got it all figured out. This will actually take a whole load of stress off of me if I outsource this. And by the way, it'll be cheaper.
1: So you mentioned supply chains and we've seen a lot of supply chain disruptions. We've seen the chip industry not be able to keep up with production in the automobile industry. We've seen a, a, a tanker go sideways in the Suez Canal any of that supply chain concern you from an inflation standpoint? And let's segue sort of a little bit into inflation and then into rates for a moment. Um, so on the inflationary side, we're gonna see some marks here, Kate, that show us on a on a quarter to quarter basis, since we're going Q2 to Q2, we're gonna see a huge step up in all the inputs as it relates to Q2 2020 to Q2 2021. Should we read through those or should those really be of concern to us when we see some of these prints?
0: Yeah, let me just answer the chip thing, first of all, because I I follow this reasonably closely. We think a bunch of the chip supply chain bottlenecks will ease by the end of the second half of this year. And I think companies are going to have to adjust their strategy around chips to not get to the same problem again in the future, which might mean a little inventory stocking. So we might actually see extended periods of high demand for chips as people try and buffer against supply chain shocks in the future. So this I'm watching very closely.
1: Do you think Um, any of that comes back to the U.S. so that we're not so reliant on foreign manufacturers of chips?
0: It would be great. It takes some time. And, you know, globalization allowed many different countries and regions to specialize in different parts of the supply chain as people look to onshore their supply chains it's going to require a significant amount of investment. It doesn't happen in a couple quarters. It happens in a couple years. And, you know, that's true for China. It's true for the U.S. It's certainly true for Europe. So uh, I think we'll see some of that, but I, you know, my timeline is a lot longer than the average bear.
1: But so on that, just just uh, so you don't see the pandemic causing a fundamental shift to supply chains in America.
0: It depends on the supply chain, Willie. I mean, I say this because, There have been lots of surveys and lots of discussions with CFOs about their plans to invest differently domestically. And when it's gonna take a while to rebuild a supply chain or to bring it completely onshore, what we've instead heard them say, as much as I was talking about when it comes to chips and Silicon in general, is they may look to stockpile in the near term before they can find a viable production capacity that's closer to their end market it's gonna be really in fits and starts. And it's a significant amount of investment that may or may not make sense longer term. Certain supply chains, I would expect to look to produce closer to their end consumer. But that doesn't mean, for example, all production capacity leaves China or the rest of emerging Asia uh, because there's huge consumer demand there too. Uh, This is all my way of saying, I think it's gonna be very nuanced. And I think there's a gap between the rhetoric, we're going to change our supply chains and the practice understanding that it takes many years and a lot of investment, and there has to be like a proof case for it.
1: So on that inflation and inflationary pressure coming from either supply chains or just the cost of goods going up, are you in the camp that says we really won't see a lot of consumer inflationary pressure just because goods and services that we still have excess capacity there will continue to see asset inflation and asset uh, price appreciation, but that's not what the Fed's looking at to cause them to move on rates? Or do you say, nope, we're going to see consumer inflation and the Fed's going to move?
0: Yeah. So first thing that I will say, there's a bunch of incoming data that suggests that the reopening sensitive components of inflation are rebounding faster than like we originally had in our forecast. So instead of thinking about inflation popping in the second half of this year, which was you know, kind of the baseline forecast, we're now saying, you know, in the middle part of this year, we're likely to see much higher inflation prints. That said, there are two questions around this. You know, will inflation be transitory? So by the time you and I are talking at this time next year, we say like 2% is kind of average. It's not such a big deal. Uh, And the second question is, how does monetary policy respond if we're talking about a one-time significant rise in inflation that reverts back to something closer to the long-term average level that they're comfortable with? You know, on the latter, kind of on this view around how monetary policy responds, I often defer to my fixed income colleagues on this one, although I do have my own conversations with the Fed. But it seems, you know, quite clear that the tone from central bankers, particularly from Fed speakers, will likely evolve over coming quarters uh, as inflation picks up a little bit. And we'll likely, we'll see some adjustments in terms of monetary policy. But this kind of question about whether or not inflation really ends up hitting the consumer wallet, I think is up in the air. There are two ways companies can deal with it. They can take higher input costs and pass it on if they have that pricing power. We know there's a little bit of a lag, so a short margin hit while that happens. Or they can make productivity and efficiency-enhancing investments to mitigate the, the impacts of higher inflation going forward. If that inflation is coming, if the more sustained inflation is coming in terms of wages, I expect to we'll see companies make more investments in technology uh, that allows them to work with a more streamlined labor force. That's like a really polite way of saying they're going to slow down their hiring in order to not pay for additional expensive workers. And so I, there's a lot of questions about how different companies and different industries handle this. My gut feeling is that we're not going to be stressing about inflation in a couple quarters from now, that yeah, we're seeing this one-time pickup, that we're going to see many consumers you know, see slightly higher prices in some of their goods, but nothing that is uh, kind of derailing to growth or spending.
1: So if you think about that in the context of rates and the 10-year being at 158, 160 today, what's your thought as it relates to where the 10-year would be by the end of 2021?
0: I find forecasting the 10-year quite challenging.
1: But, as do I and I and I and I'm in that market every single day and I'm smart enough not to give anyone my real precise number on what I think it's going to be. But I, you're a lot smarter than I am. And you're also uh, a lot more willing to put yourself out there. So where's the 10 you're going to be?
0: Willie, I feel like you might be throwing me under the bus right now. Well, no, like, no, oh, no, I would no. never do this. But, Kate, you go ahead and give yeah, me. Exactly.
1: Number. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, Thank I mean, you it's so important in the commercial real estate space, obviously, on sort of where the 10-year goes and then also where the Fed funds rate goes for floating rate debt. Because we have clients every single day who are sitting there saying, do I fix? Do I float? Are rates going to run on me, so I want to fix it in today? Or is the short end of the curve going to stay low because the Fed is in this easy money policy for sort of forever? And therefore, it doesn't really matter what I do today because I can go borrow on floating rate and and, and short-term rates are going to stay low for a long period of time. So any, I mean, just in that that framework, if you had a commercial real estate property to go finance today, would Mm -hmm. you go floating rate and stay on the short end of the curve? Or would you go and lock in long-term fixed rate financing because you think rates are going to really run?
0: It's a quite binary and um, it's a it's a question give give that everyone
1: it's a question that every one of our clients has every single day and so that question of fixed versus float and where do rates go from here is something that you know is super important and obviously plays into the broader markets as well. So it's anyway thoughts yeah
0: so my answer is and I'm gonna just you know put myself out there by giving a forecast I think the 10 year is going to trend to two percent by by year end. The the exact path of the move from 156 to two I, I can't give you. Uh, yeah. That said I think given the strength of the economy, you know, better inflation as in no disinflation and, you know, a stronger growth outlook is going to lead us to kind of a 2% on the 10 year. I think there's going to be a lot of demand at kind of a 175 and a 2% level. So that's why the path is going to be difficult to forecast. Um, But if I were in the place right now to think about financing being floating rate or via fixed, I would choose fixed. I think the, the, the path of rates should be higher over the course of the next 18 months, even after we get past the 2% on the 10-year. And I would expect for less accommodation from the Fed and from global central banks uh, as we get past the COVID shock.
1: So a little bit behind all that is, you know, global capital flows and where money's going and whether people are buying into the US equity market, into the US debt market or going outside. Um, BlackRock is quite bullish on emerging markets right now and overweight on China. Can mm-hmm. you talk a little bit about what you're seeing outside the, the four walls of the US?
0: Yeah. So the view on China has many different parts to it. But let me first talk about the portfolio perspective, where uh, Chinese equities and Chinese bonds, so Chinese government bonds, um, parts of the Chinese debt market, I know we have some hiccups there right now, offer really important diversifying benefits to a global portfolio. And on the equity side, and I can't remember if we talked about this last time we spoke, but you you have a pool of companies that are very domestically oriented. Unlike the US, where you have like 40% of your sales outside of the US and for some parts of the market cap even bigger, uh, that's seen the case in, in Europe, where you have a hugely diversified uh, revenue sources. Most of the big Chinese companies are 100% in China. So you're dealing with Chinese consumers, Chinese policy, Chinese sort of like overall investment trends, you know, the interplay between the real estate market and risk assets that is totally unique from what's happening in the rest of the world. And I think that makes it a really interesting diversifier for portfolios. You also get companies with business models that look completely different than maybe US or European counterparts. I get kind of restricted on naming names, but there's, there's a few consumer platforms in China that when I was first introduced to them, say like five or six years ago, I literally would sit in these company meetings, you know, in Shanghai or Beijing and think like, I don't get it. Like you're growing phenomenally, but like the way that a consumer interfaces with your product and with your platform, like doesn't make a ton of sense to me. That was my fault because I just wasn't putting my brain in the body of a Chinese consumer. And and now I get it. And it's super interesting. There's interesting innovation and, you know, collective buying and sort of shopping clubs and things that that I never had thought once or even twice about, you know, in the U.S., incredibly powerful in a place like China. So I can buy into these business models that look really different. They cater to a different type of consumer that interacts with their phone and their platforms totally uh, differently than we see in the US. So I love that diversifier. And then from a rates perspective, I would say, you know, we still see an attractive yield across a bunch of Chinese fixed income. So as I mentioned, some hiccups in Chinese credit at the today at this moment, uh, but in terms of Chinese government bonds and then in broader, in terms of dollar-based Chinese credit, we think it it, offers a nice yield pickup, especially for those of us that are global investors.
1: And what about the, the re-emergence of Europe? Um, I was uh, I noticed yesterday that the FTSE still isn't even back to where it was pre-pandemic. You think about the U.S. markets being up. You said the S&P 52. I said the the Dow's up 47 or whatever it is. And the FTSE isn't even back to where it was a year ago. I think it was at 7,500 pre-pandemic. It went down to 5,000, and it's now at 7,000. What's your take on the reopening trade in Europe?
0: Oh, really? I hate to be admitting this in such a public forum, but, you know, count me as a euro skeptic and not like a skeptic of the euro, the currency. But, you know, I feel like if it's not once a year, it's, you know, once every 18 months, the whole market comes together and says now is the time to rotate into Europe. Or in a time like now where we see a significant cyclical upswing and many of the companies in Europe you know, have huge operating leverage. That's another way of saying their fixed cost base is so high, they can't do that well unless there is a cyclical upturn. You know, everyone gets all bulled up. And, but there are a couple of things that I think are really important, especially with investing in European equities. Number one, the market composition of Europe looks nothing like the U.S. or even China. The amount of technology, the amount of innovation is meaningfully less. And I'm blaming a lot of that on the labor laws in Europe, which make it more challenging to have sort of dynamic companies that, you know, rise and then fall, uh, hire new people and then get rid of them when things don't work out. And also because, you know, the market is dominated by more resources and banks versus technology and consumer. So, you know, it's, it's a harder market for me to just buy. And so I tend to be more skeptical. I would also note that, you know, there are some outstanding European companies that should be bought as like kind of, um, take idiosyncratic risk, like bet on those specific companies. But a lot of those companies that I like also have high gearing to the US and China, to places where I have greater confidence in, in the growth story in say 2022. So sometimes when I'm buying Europe, I'm really buying the globe. I'm buying best in class companies that are globally diversified. So I guess I just would say I wouldn't be putting a whole bunch of money into the index at this point. You don't get a lot of great companies. You're better off off stock picking and picking those stocks that have gearing to the U.S. and China.
1: So fair to say if you will, all eyes should be headed West and not East in looking for investments. Cause I don't think many people are looking South to Latin America right now. And what you basically said is a pretty big blanket on on, on, on Europe. And so really the opportunity is in Asia and the U.S. for, for the foreseeable future. Is that, a, is that a fair summary of what you just said?
0: Yeah, like that's how I like to think about barbelling my portfolio is, you know, chunky positions in the U.S., chunky positions in China, business models that are very different than each other, and then being a real stock picker in the rest of the regions. So uh, particularly in Europe, there are some great companies in Latin America uh, that we like as well, but they're very specific and I wouldn't buy the broad index there, which is very geared in, in some cases to resources and banks.
1: So last time you and I talked, I asked you, what do you read and how do you stay up with all the amount of information that you bring in? And you said that you You read what I learned this week uh, by our mutual friend, Carol Sokolov of 13D Research. I'm curious about data and how BlackRock is using technology to make you smarter and smarter. I I read this morning about a, uh, a firm, Two Sigma, that is, raising a real estate fund that is going to be using data analytics purely to figure out what commercial properties to buy and what commercial properties to sell, if you will, and just basically using, using data to make their investment decisions. How much has your life changed as, a, as, as an investor, given the technology investments that BlackRock has made over the past decade?
0: Well, can I just say, I mean, I'm blown away by the technology investments, the data scientists uh, at BlackRock. And think back to earlier in my career, where like, if I had access to some of this data, instead of like combing through faxes, by the way, faxes, in case anyone (laughs) forgot about those, for information and data sets, you know, I'd be able to make decisions so much more quickly. And I think that's that's this really amazing resource we have now, BlackRock. Everyone's using data in a million different ways, but I like to think that we are unparalleled. I'll give you an example. You know, working on a, a sort of a pool of companies in the environmental kind of climate space, I was trying to figure out, you know, um, what their clients, what their customers were really saying about them. So I put this query into our data science, this data, data scientists, who then web scraped you know, all of the comments, you know, either in private chat rooms or whatever it was, and really helped to aggregate, you know, how views on some of these companies were evolving. It wasn't just what I was hearing from sell-side analysts and their interpretation of management meetings or of earnings, but actually from people who are using the products. And it's just phenomenal and really helps to give me a much more well-rounded view of an investment or an opportunity. I think data is gonna become more integral to all of our processes. You know, I'm more of a macro person and I'm taking in data in slightly different ways than others, but our fundamental analysts that cover just single stocks are incorporating data differently than they ever did before. And if you don't, if you don't innovate, if you don't incorporate new data, you become obsolete.
1: You talking about the facts makes me smile because I got fished yesterday by somebody saying you have a fax that you need to pick up. And if you press here, you can pick it up. And I, I said, to myself, I haven't looked at a fax in 10 years. Who's, you said you're who's 20 this years This fisher is clearly like, maybe it's a, maybe it's someone who's like 65 years old who thinks that faxes are still flying around in this world. But I thought it was hysterical that they asked me to click to pick up my fax.
0: I remember when I was an analyst, like, you know, being one of the first people in and going go into the fax machine you know, uh, in our little group area and sorting through the research reports and dropping them on everyone's different desks. I mean, wow, difference. So
1: um, to to, to close out, Kate, everything looks really rosy. We've got a lot of stimulus out there. We've got relatively low rates. We've got a stock market that's hitting all-time highs, but everyone's saying there's so much more juice to come because of the reopening and people getting back to the things that we've talked about. What's the thing that you're watching that says that's going to be my canary in the coal mine? That's if I if I keep my eye on that. And obviously, you know, very few people saw that the subprime mortgage uh, industry was going to bring down the economy. Right. A couple of hedge funds made the right play on that. And so, you know, it's hard to figure out what that one thing to really watch is. But as you look at sort of what's happening politically, economically, socially around the globe? What's the thing that you're kind of tracking that says, if that starts to move in the wrong way, I might get a little more pessimistic about things.
0: Well, I think it depends on the time horizon, Willie, but I have to say, you know, in the near term, you know, very sharp adjustment in rates again would make me nervous. You know, if we were to see the same kind of move we saw in the first quarter, you know, like a mini tapery tantrumy, although I kind of hate that analogy because 2013 was such a different time, you know, that would make me a little bit nervous. The thing I'm watching also really closely, of course, is the tax proposal. And we know kind of an aggregate of all of those taxes were implemented. It would be, you know, 7% hit to S&P taxes, uh, earnings, but really disproportionately felt by multinational corporations who, are paying much lower effective tax rates than the headline rate at this point. You know, and I think that kind of adjustment and trying to think about how companies deal with that, that would be a bit of an obstacle. Um, so I'm watching those two things very closely. You know, I have to tell you, I'm a little bit less concerned around the U.S.-China risk. I think we're going to be in a tense relationship between U.S. and China for some time, but it will be a low, low level of stress, um, long, tense relationship, as opposed to like periodic you know, bouts of disagreement or decoupling. Willie, really, I realized I didn't answer your question about what I'm reading, and it's not just about investment research, but I'm a giant sci-fi fan, and I've decided to reread the Dune series. So it's not investment research, but I love reading science fiction and understanding the structure of the world in which the science fiction writer is occupying. In this case, it has to do with environment and the interplay between politics and power and religion, and You know, I love it. So that's, I I want to put that in there.
1: Final question. What will be the date when you sit across the table from Larry, think and have a face-to-face meeting with him?
0: Probably not till September. I would say it it could be sooner because I was in the New York office for a few days last week, but our summers here in Jackson Hole are kind of magical. So I'm going to try and milk it.
1: See, I wasn't going to tell people you're in Jackson Hole with that backdrop on you, but you just gave it away. So I'll, I'll let that I'll let that be the last point on this. Kate, always great to see you. Thanks for all your insight, and um, have a great time in Jackson. Uh, to everyone who joined us today, thanks for joining us again, and we'll see you next week with Jim Lair to talk about character and leadership. Thanks, everyone. Have a great day. Thanks, Kate.